we got a lot going on here, so one more announcement really quick for you. Uh, if you've been around uh, the last little bit, you know that the, this last year we've been working on something called Springvale Institute. And so today we will have a foyer table. You can come find me there, not at But First Coffee. Um, I will be there. Ed will be solo at But First Coffee. But I always say But First Coffee, as in you have to like, anyway, But First Coffee. Um, but if you come and find us at the foyer table, we would love to share about what we're planning for January for our Bible study, as well as for our core class. Okay? Good? Good. This morning, we're back into our series, Feel Free. If you remember last week, we looked at the connection between emotional maturity and health and spiritual maturity and health. And the, the thesis, the overall kind of driving point that we're trying to explore over the next few weeks, um, I, I kind of shared with uh, what Pete Scazzaro has written about emotionally healthy spirituality. And he says this, it is not possible for a Christian to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. And often, especially depending on what uh, tradition or background we come from, that's not normally a connection that is made for us. But what we got to see or start to explore last week is that throughout Scripture and within the Christian tradition, it's everywhere. That connection between emotional maturity, right, EQ, and spiritual maturity are integrated in very real ways and that God actually promised us to meet us in there, right? So last week we got to start that. Today, we're going to specifically look at the importance of processing the past. We're gonna look at the emotional importance today of processing the past. Now some of us in this room, we love the past. We're nostalgic people. We've got like little time capsules or emotional time capsules. We love to think about the past. We love to stare at pictures and envision the past. Others of us try not to look in the rearview mirror at all. It's a, a place of pain for us or it's a place of loss for us. So we try to just stay focused on what is here and now, or just continue to push forward for what could be. Regardless of how we feel about the past this morning, one thing is sure about all of us, and that is our past has a profound impact on who we are and how we are. That there are all sorts of positive and negative opportunities and challenges, blessings and things that are painful in our past that make us who we are, that actually shape how we are. So we all have baggage. We all have carryover, right? We all have emotional scar tissue in our lives that shape us and how we process things today. So again, regardless of how nostalgic you like to be, or for those of us who may be Avoid looking in the rearview mirror as much as possible. Our present is shaped by our past for better and for worse. And some of us in this room, by God's grace, we, have, we had a great upbringing. We come from stable families, free of, of kind of unidentifiable trauma or abuse. Others of us have had st things said to us or done to us that should never be said or done to another person. We have real pain associated with the past. But regardless of where we find ourselves, every one of us has emotional baggage, just kind of an invisible sack of things that we carry around associated with pain, with loss, with disappointment. So understanding where we come from is to understand who we are, especially emotionally. In this room, who is a fan of the show, This Is Us? It's a safe, it's a safe place. Men, you can, you can say it, it's okay. 
I love that show. It is a very raw, visceral showcase of how generational decisions impact other generations. And it does just a really good job showing, again, just the, the positive and the negative impact of generational decisions. It shows us that our families are part of us. Our families shape us. Our families live in us. The past lives in us and lives through us. And a show like This Is Us shows us exactly that, right? Studies have shown that few things shape us more in who we are, in our emotional world especially, than our family of origin, than our upbringing in particular. Our families are the first community we belong to, the first social group that we understand what like, relationships mean and social group cohesion means. It's all sorts of psychological and emotional influences there that happen in our family of origins. Our relationship to our parents, to our um, our siblings to our wider families shape us more than any other relationship that we have, especially in our early years. We all have patterns of behavior and thinking and emotional processing that we've just absorbed. We've just absorbed from our family of origin, from our cultural heritage, and from experiences that have shaped us. Our families and our past give us quite literally the building blocks that kind of make us who we are. It teach us, teaches us how to interact with others. It teaches us about values, uh, about morals, about how to handle conflict, about how to manage stress, how to communicate or not, how to define success and, and what it means to actually you know, do well at life. A lot of that is learned and just absorbed into our person, into the tissue that makes us who we are long before we even understand that it's there, right? It's the age-old debate of nature versus nurture. And after many, many centuries of arguing, it's just like, yes, yes, right? That our, our nature shapes us, but also the nurture shapes us, that who we are intrinsically also interacts with us environmentally. And if somewhere in between those two things, we are who we are. This is us, right? So a couple examples of how this shapes us, and then we'll look at a, a few things as a way of invitation to look in the past today. But anger... Expressing anger is learned from our family of origins in ways we don't quite understand the impact. Whether we repress emotions or maybe the furnace door just blows off after we spend years holding things down or stuffing things below the surface. Or we just allow anger to come out in sarcasm. That's some of us, especially Canadians, right? Sarcasm is a gift where we're just kind of leaking resentment, right? It's a beautiful thing. Uh, conflict. We learn how to deal with conflict because life is full of, of conflict. We learn kind of a, do we have a fight or a flight response to conflict? We learn that in our family of origin. We learn about stress and coping mechanisms and how we're going to manage it or not well or in a healthy way or an unhealthy way. We learn how to process emotions, how to think about love and affection, whether it was shown physically in our households or verbally or not that shapes us about how we understand affection and love and what it means to be seen and belong. And then, of course, with money and success. Some of us come from poverty. That shapes us. Some of us come from generational wealth. That shapes us. Some of us only think about money as the way to achieve status and significance. That, that shapes us. That comes from our family of origin. And last, when it comes to just romance, sexuality, Maybe we grew up and it's just taboo. We just don't talk about it. Or we only got like the, hey, here's the birds and the bees and don't do any of it until you get married. And then like nothing, no conversations between like icky to like then you're married, it's not icky anymore. And you're like, what? Like, 
What do I do between all of that, right? That shapes us. That's patterns from our family of origin. So I'll leave that alone. But on top of all of these things that just naturally shape us and we absorb into who we are, there's also destructive generational patterns and behaviors that are maybe more painful for some of us. There could be cycles of addiction, experiences of emotional, verbal, or sexual abuse. There could be unfaithfulness or divorce in our story. There could be real experiences of abandonment, emotional unavailability. There could be unwed pregnancies and all the emotional backlash from that. There's all sorts of brokenness around mental and emotional health that can come from simply being in the family of origin that we're in. So regardless of where you find yourself this morning, I think there's an invitation for each of us. Whether we are quite nostalgic and we have the blessing of looking back to our family of origin in our past, or if for some of us, the past is actually a place of pain. Here's what Pete Scazzaro says about the emotional importance of this. In emotionally healthy churches, people understand how their past affects their present ability to love Christ and others. Large numbers of people are crippled by their pasts. Unaware that their past impacts their present, they bury or minimize the family history that lives inside them and settle for a constricted Christian life in which they are stuck spiritually and emotionally. This really draws our attention to awareness like we talked about last week. That it's in the awareness of what's going on in us, in us emotionally that we actually meet with God, right? And he's pointing that out. Now, the Bible is full of examples of dysfunctional families. I come from a dysfunctional family and we kept the fun in dysfunctional, let me tell you. But the Bible is full of dysfunctional families. Tons of examples. Okay, I will give you one. Just the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob alone, which by the way, if you know anything about scripture, kind of a big deal family, right? If there were like royal Jewish families of the Bible, they are the royal family and they are an absolute train wreck. And what we see throughout the story, the narrative kind of arc of scripture is that each generation's failure and sin, but also obedience and blessing impacts the next generation in significant ways. I'll give you a few things that are just patterns within that family. And some of us will be like, oh, I feel seen, right? But there's a, a pattern of dishonesty and cover-up and lies. Abraham lies about Sarah being his wife twice. Imagine, imagine, imagine the conversation on the car ride home, right? Isaac and Rebekah's life was dominated by lies and manipulation of each other and others. Jacob lies to literally everyone. His name is the deceiver. Yikes. And by the fourth generation of this family, we see 10 of Jacob's sons fake the death of Joseph, cover it up, and then deal with the emotional fallback of all of that. In this family, we also see favorite child syndrome. Abraham favors Ishmael, but Sarah wants to disown. Isaac favors Esau. Rebecca loves Jacob a little too much. And Jacob favors Joseph and later Benjamin. Imagine the internal dynamics between parents and children that that created in that family. Third, we see unbelievable amount of sibling rivalry and betrayal between the family. Isaac and Ishmael completely cut off. Jacob has to flee Esau, literally for his life. They're reconciled years later, thankfully. Joseph 
Genesis ends with Joseph being left for dead, cut off by 10 of his brothers for over a decade. Imagine the family dynamic. And fourth and finally, we see sexual infidelity and sin. Abraham has a child with his side chick, Hagar. Isaac has an unhealthy relationship at best with Rebecca. Jacob ends up having two sister wives and two side chicks. What? Like, this is, this is the Bible, right? You're just like, what, what is going on? Now, here's an important reminder. When we read stuff like this, I sit with people who are not believers, and they're like, oh, the Bible loves polygamy. The Bible loves foolishness. The Bible, right? Just because something is described in the Bible doesn't mean it's being prescribed in the Bible. Are you with me on that? This literally is in the Bible to be like, yeah, don't do that, right? This doesn't turn out well. Polygamy, bad idea, right? And it shows us over the long narrative arc that this does not end in flourishing. This does not end in emotional, relational health and flourishing, right? Um, 1 Corinthians 10.6 says that all of these things, referring to especially like the naughty things, were written down as examples so that we don't desire evil. So we have like this portrait where not only is it an example of like, yeah, this turns out bad, but it also turns the mirror to us. It also invites us in to show us some of our families sound exactly like that. Some of our families have some of those same patterns and we are deeply affected generations later. But here's the good news. By the time we get to Genesis 50, verse 16 onwards, we see that Joseph is faced with his past. Joseph is faced with the opportunity to finally get back at his brothers. Finally, it's like, here it is. Justice will be served. And there's this amazing, powerful scene where Joseph is left undone by the reality that he is overwhelmed with forgiveness and compassion towards his brothers. And it's a very powerful scene of forgiveness and reconciliation. And what Joseph says is, what you planned for evil, God has planned it for good. Now this is significant because what it's showing us is that God is the only one who can actually, not just use, but also redeem the ugliest parts of our story to create something beautiful. That the God of the Bible actually just glories in taking crooked sticks and drawing straight lines. And that we see that by a reflection in these stories, but also in our past. That when we look in our past, we can see that God is the only one that works in and through and in spite of our families, in spite of our past decisions, often in ways that are hard to see. But if we never look to see them, we will not be able to actually worship God for them. So you can't shake it. It's everywhere, all throughout scripture. Bible just showcases the fact that decisions, experiences of each generation affects the other. Exodus 20, we just finished going through the Ten Commandments over the last few months. If you remember right in there, smack dab in the middle of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, it talks about the brokenness and the sins of the Father, and specifically generational sin, where God is saying, listen, I'm going to visit the iniquity and the decisions on the third or fourth generation. Sometimes we stop there. What does it say after that? But I'm going to visit blessing on a thousand generations for those who love me for those who actually reorient their lives around me, for those who allow me to actually come and reorient the loves of their heart and direct their lives towards me to keep me as the primary object of worship and then allow me to change them from there. A thousand generations. Now, in Hebrew, a thousand is always just forever. 
It just means that God is willing to actually, if we are honest about our past and our stories and come to him with it, again, no filter, that he is willing to actually have a forever type blessing in and through us despite where we're coming from. Is that not good news? And it's all right there. Generational sin, and sometimes we can talk about it and it gets interesting. It doesn't mean that God is going to curse you for your parents or grandparents' sins like he's some kind of witch doctor with nothing to do on a Wednesday afternoon. But what generational sin does mean is that our father and grandfathers, our mother and grandmother's decisions affect us for better and for worse. That sin has collateral damage, that there is compound interest in our lives emotionally and relationally, positively and negatively. Our family lives inside of us and through us. So just hear me, if you're feeling the weight of that, we're all equally responsible for our choices. We are. But we don't all start with equal opportunities and experiences. And until we acknowledge that, we will not be able to, first of all, be honest about our own story and compassionate towards ourselves, but we will also struggle to continue to be compassionate towards others that have different stories than us. That's why this matters. There's a very outward-facing part of this after we're done dealing with the inward stuff. And this is one reason why many of us still, decades later, feel like this weird sense of guilt or shame, like, oh, why am I still so impacted by a divorce? Why am I still so impacted by, by, by that death or that loss? Like, get over it, right? We feel this guilt or shame as if we don't carry it with us. The past is present in us. And we can't shake it, and we don't need to. And that's the good news, that we actually need to reckon with it. We need to look at it. We need to see it for what it is. We need to evaluate it. Now, I'll just tell you a little bit about my journey. The, pain, the, the past for me is a painful place. Uh, I'm, I, I work with a, a counselor. I have for a de- over a decade now. To work through my own story, for me, there's lots of generational brokenness. There is long, long dysfunction of addiction and abuse. There's a lot of emotional scar tissue for me because of trauma that I have not just witnessed but experienced myself. My story starts with a single mom who by God's grace rescues her in a miraculous way and I get a new family. By age seven, I have a new dad, a new family, but I'm still left with carrying all of the other emotional and relational things, the scar tissue that exists and here I am almost 40 years old, still working through that. And so the invitation to us is to actually understand that sometimes it's not just that we are impacted negatively by pain in our past, and that we grieve that, that that's true, but that some of us have pain of losing what we had hoped for but didn't happen. And in my story, I, I, I pursued the opportunity to reconcile with my biological father later in life, and I didn't get that opportunity because he was murdered before I could get that chance. And so I'm not just mourning the loss or the pain associated with the loss of somebody who was pretty insignificant in a positive way in my life, but what I am mourning still now as a man and as a father and as a leader is that I didn't get the opportunity to do the thing I had hoped for. And my guess might be that although some of us here definitely have real pain about what has happened, that all of us can look into our lives and understand that we feel pain about things that didn't happen that we had hoped for. 
And I, I don't think we give enough credit to how many like micro pains or micro griefs we experience even from childhood. Our best friend moves away. We change schools, get into adulthood, we change jobs, or we have a pet die, and we're like, what in the world? Like, why am I feeling all this about little whatever? Tremper Longman the fourth. <laughs> if you weren't here last week, I'm sorry. Immigrating to a new country, a church hurt that we might have in our story and in our past. These are all little micro griefs that if we don't reconcile, actually deal with them, enter into and allow God to engage, we, we can't heal, right? Others of us have, have main, major ones, bigger ones. Death of a loved one or a spouse or a parent. We have the earth-shattering pain of suicide close to us. The loss of a miscarriage the disappointment of that diagnosis. Or as we go through life, we just hit seasons where by 25, I had hoped for fill in the blank. By 35, I had hoped for fill in the blank. By 55, I had hoped for fill in the blank. By 85, I had hoped for fill in the blank. Retirement itself. Becoming an empty nester. All of those things are little micro griefs that we're experiencing loss we're, we're, we're working through loss and change. And there's a serious emotional weight to that, right? But that's not like trauma is happening necessarily. It's not that those things are going terribly for us, but it's that we had a picture or envisioned what things would be like and they didn't turn out that way. There's an emotional disappointment and a weight that we carry because of that. The Bible is clear that if we don't learn to grieve pain and loss in our lives, we cannot heal. Now, Western culture does not help us here when it comes to how we process pain, loss. Um, when our entire lives are built on up and to the right, when life feels down and to the left, it doesn't quite mesh. Are you with me on that? Like, like our Western culture hands us this version of what it means to be crushing it or, or successful, and then life happens and we realize, wait, but I'm not quite crushing it, Right? Or even when I started to crush it, it didn't fix what was crushing me, right? Like, like the Western culture really doesn't help us there. Because pain and loss and disappointment shows us against the illusion that we're given that we're not actually in control. And that we live in an individualistic culture as well. I mean, other collectivist cultures have all sorts of ways to deal with grief. Like Buddhists have a, a practice that it's like a 49-day long thing to like grieve. We have a Wednesday afternoon, maybe, off work to go and be like, ah, uh, may you rest in peace, and then we move on. What's on Netflix, right? So, so like we just, Western culture doesn't give us the equipment to do this. So we deny, we distract, we become cynical and cold. We just keep people away or at an arm's length so that we can't let them close anymore. Why? Because that's a place of pain, right? So we numb, we cope, we entertain, we shop, we eat. We pursue it in that next sexual encounter or that romantic relationship. Whatever will give us a dopamine drip to just take away the pain. That's the West. I read something last week in a Huffington Post article by someone who is not a Christian reflecting on this reality. Her name is Michelle Steinke Baumgard. Listen to what she says about this. This is unbelievably insightful. 
We are a culture of emotionally stunted individuals who are scared of our mortality and have mastered the art of stuffing our pain. Western culture asks us to suppress our pain, stuff our emotions, and restrain our cries. Society does not want to hear or accept that grief stays with us in some capacity for the rest of our lives. We want to hear there is a quick fix, a cure-all, a pill, or a healthy dose of get over it to be handed out discreetly and dealt with quietly. The reality is you will grieve in some capacity for the rest of your life. Once loss touches you, you are forever changed despite what society tells you. Stop looking at the expectations of an emotionally numbed society as your threshold and measuring stick for success. Talk about an honest reflection on the state of our culture. The fact that we are not emotionally equipped to be maturing and mature individuals. That we're not encouraged to be honest and actually not, like we're told to silence our cry, not amplify them, especially to God, right? What we saw last week is that God not only invites our cry, but that he actually enters into them. It is by engaging our emotions, including pain, including grief, including loss, that we start the process of healing. One of my favorite, I'll just tell you, sorry. One of my favorite hip-hop artists, sorry, I know country, like, mm -hmm. <laughs> don't email me. What? <laughs> One of my favorite hip-hop artists, Christian hip-hop artists, just I'll put that qualifier in there for those of you who are like, but hip-hop is of the devil, okay. <clears throat> His name's Andy Minio, and he talks about the reality that pain and loss always finds the way to the surface. He has one lyric, and he says, when you bury emotions, you bury them alive, and they only come back stronger somewhere later in your life. And that's exactly it. That we bury emotions alive because we haven't actually dealt with how to put them to rest. So we just, we just bury, we stuff. But, but that, that just continues to creep. It doesn't go away. C.S. Lewis says that pain insists on being attended to, right? That, that we can like enjoy kind of like the dopamine hit of like good things for a little while, but pain will never stop kind of just shouting like a megaphone to us that something is undealt with and something is deeply wrong. Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount invites all of us who would be honest to mourn and grieve well. And he says, blessed are those who mourn. That's a wild thing to say, especially in our culture. Happy are those who would choose to sometimes actually look at their unhappiness. Right? That, that's wild. But Jesus is actually saying, no, blessed are those who mourn. Why? Because they will be comforted. Could it be that we have so much emotional angst in our culture without comfort or any kind of dealing with it because we won't feel it? That's this. That's the invitation. Time doesn't heal all wounds because time passing doesn't mean that we've actually dealt with things. Are you with me on that? Like time just passing, like this space-time continuum, like moving on, doesn't mean I've actually dealt with stuff, right? So time doesn't heal all wounds. Time can definitely lessen the blow of things that we've experienced, 
But time can also be the place that we use to deal with our pain, to grieve well in a healthy way. And God invites us to invite him into that, into grief, into pain, into loss, because it's that that invites us to healing. The Bible is full of this. We miss it because we cherry pick other verses and put them on t-shirts to just make us feel really good as Christians. But guys, it's everywhere. The Bible is full of it. There's 35 chapters of Job that is just raw anguish, just mourning. Like just, it's just like 35 chapters of anguish and sorrow, depression, suicidal ideation and confusion. And we're like, oh, I don't know, weird book. No, not really. Some of us would read that and be like, that's me, right? It's, it's everywhere. Ecclesiastes 3 says there's a time for everything, including weeping and mourning. Jeremiah, who was a big baby, the prophet Jeremiah, just like whined constantly and then wrote an entire book about it called Lamentations, right? Where he's just processing all of the stuff, but he's at least processing it and getting it out. Hebrews 5, 7 tells us that Jesus himself, like we saw last week, experienced loud cries and tears of pain. I want to share one example from the book of Psalms. And I want to invite you because Psalms is going to be your safe space for processing this. Psalms, two-thirds of the Psalms are lament, are mourning. We usually skip them because we like, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I love that, that sounds great. But two-thirds of them are just mourning, lamentation, sorrow, questioning where God is in the midst of pain. Psalm 6, give you one example, and we'll wrap up. Psalm 6, verse 2, King David writes this, Be gracious to me, Lord, for I am weak. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are shaking. He's trembling as he writes this. My whole being is shaken with terror. And you, Lord, how long? Like, like you see the honesty there? Like, where, where are you? Like, what are you doing? Right? Do you see that? Verse 6. I am weary. I'm tired from my groaning. Like, I'm tired listening to myself. With tears, I dampen my bed, and I drench my couch every night. My eyes are swollen from grief. They grow old because of all of my enemies. Verse 9, the Lord has heard my plea for help, and the Lord accepts my prayer. I love how the Psalms enter us into this and then finish with good news. Finish with God's response to this. And you see just the depth, like the visceral rawness to what he's experiencing. And then God answers that prayer. He receives it. He doesn't go, oh, you have little faith. How dare you question me? I am the sovereign king of the universe. No, no, he enters in. He enters in. He collects those tears from the cushions that David is crying on. He puts them in a bottle. And Revelation 21 tells us that there will come a day where he will take that bottle and there will be no more tears, right? There'll be no more pain. There'll be no more loss. That he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and that death itself will be no more. That grief and dying and loss and pain will be no more because the past has now passed away. Wow. Paul Tripp is a pastor and counselor who has written a ton on this topic. And here's what he says, and this will be the invitation for us. He wrote a book called Grief, Finding Hope Again. He said, the Bible is honest about the sorrows of life. Some of you already don't believe that. You just need to hear that this morning. 
And God expects you to be honest as well. Psalms 13, 22, 38, 42, 55, 59, 61, 73, and 88. He's just giving us a couple examples. All record God's people bringing their honest grief, questions and complaints to the Lord. You should too. If you are confused, let God know. If you are angry, let God know. If you are sad, let God know. Your faith shouldn't silence you in the midst of your grief, but should be the catalyst for a conversation with your heavenly father, the very lover of your soul. It's in the honest moments that you'll begin to understand the depths of God's wisdom and love. You see, God doesn't just listen, he also answers. Pour out your grief to him and be honest. The Psalms give us words and examples of asking why. And that is a key part of the process of grief. Why did this happen? Why did you let this happen? Where were you when that happened to me? Psalms gives us language for that. Language for asking God, how long will it be till you fix this? How long will it be until you finally silence injustice with justice? And if that's you, let me just say, it's not that you don't believe in God. It's that you're struggling to know whether you can trust him. And that's very different. And the Bible shows us that there's safety in that question. And not only is there safety, but that God actually revels in answering those same cries. Just as Jesus himself prays on the cross, he prays from Psalm 22 when he says, my God, my God, why have you what? Forsaken me. Where are you? Why have you abandoned me? Like in my biggest time of need, you've abandoned me. God doesn't strike him with lightning or tell him to have more faith. He actually uses that moment of pain to give each and every one of us life. That's what's so beautiful about this. Some of us haven't done that with God. We haven't felt safety to do that. Or we've just been so confused about how we can do that. The Psalms gives us language and a space for doing that. I want to close, look at one example of Jesus experiencing this kind of pain and grief. It's in John 11. If you remember the story of Lazarus, Jesus is very close with this one family in the New Testament. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, their brother and sisters. And there's this moment where Lazarus dies and Jesus gets news that he has passed away. In John 11, verse 32, 36, we see Jesus coming into this situation. It says, as soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Like if only you did something. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Where have you put him? He asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. We'll show you where he is. Jesus got there and it says, one of the most powerful verses in all of scripture, Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. See how much he loved Lazarus. Now here's what's crazy. If you know how the story ends, Jesus here being visibly shaken and broken with grief kind of goes against what we think Jesus would do here. Do you know why? Because he resurrects Lazarus from the dead. 
So imagine he was just like, oh, guys, come on. This is all part of God's plan. I'm going to take care of it. But he enters in. He enters into the grief, to the pain. He enters into that moment of death and disappointment and loss because he knows that he's going to bring life not around it, but through it. And Springville, that's the unique power of the gospel. That there's a God who sees, who feels, and who acts. He's the God who cares and acts out of his love for us and enters in and through the grief that you and I are carrying and that he invites us to invite him in. So not only can God handle all of your emotions, even the ugly ones, but he promises to meet you in them, including grief and loss and pain. But looking back is the way forward. And there's coming a day, just like Revelation 21 tells us, where all sad things will become untrue. That means that right now in the midst of where we are, that the worst thing that has happened won't be the last thing that does happen, amen? That is the hope of the resurrection. That is the power of this. If we will invite God into it and find him and enter into that with him. I'm gonna finish and I'm gonna leave you with a benediction from 2 Corinthians chapter one, and then we'll pray. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Let me pray for us to that end this morning. God of all comfort. We know that for some of us, the past is a place of pain. And others of us, it's, it's, a, it's a place of just lost opportunities or disappointments for how things didn't turn out. And here we are. I just pray for each of us, regardless of where we are and our beliefs about you, that we would experience you today as the God of all comfort. That we would see the reality that you are the God with us. And that you don't just swipe over loss and pain, but that you meet us in it to take us through it. And that there is a day coming where one day you will wipe away every tear and all memories of loss and pain will be eclipsed by the glory that belongs to you alone. So I pray that this morning, as we start this process, as we, again, re-enter into this time of just maybe grieving some things, letting go of other things, pursuing forgiveness of certain people, pursuing reconciliation with others, we know that that is painful. We pray that you would provide comfort for us as we walk through it, and that it would be done for our good and for your glory. We ask these things in the only name that matters. In Jesus' name, amen.